0: Thank you, Jason, too, for for leading worship today. Always appreciate it. Let's uh, let's read the word of God together. We're going to read Acts chapter four, starting in verse 32. And we'll go down uh, through chapter five, verse 11. Uh, This is the word of God. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common and with great power. The apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them when uh, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought uh, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. But Peter said, Ananias, why has has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part uh, of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Uh, Was it that you uh, why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? Uh, You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard uh, these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard uh, of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down uh, at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear Came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Let's pray uh, this morning for God to, to speak and minister to us uh, through His Word. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be here today, uh, that this is your Word and this testifies to you and, and your goodness and also your power and majesty. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, uh, build us up through this passage, encourage us, correct us, teach us all the things that you promised to do through your word. We ask that you would do and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here and that he would give me uh, the words to say and that you would be honored by uh, what goes on here and that the Holy Spirit would go before the words here and and prepare our hearts and and um, just work in our lives. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, maybe some of you remember the, the song that we used to sing that uh, I'm tempted to say an old song. I, I don't know if it's an old song or not, uh, but we, I'm sure you've sung it in the past. And the line goes, and they will know we are Christians by our love. Right. And we repeat it. And they'll know we're Christians by our love, by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. One of the things that the early church and the church has always done is it has sought to take care of the needs of others, particularly in its body. And this goes on right from the days of Acts, and you can find a testimony to it all the way down through church history. Uh, In fact, in uh, the year, uh, give or take 362 or so, uh, one of the Roman emperors, uh, the emperor Julian, complained that the Christians were taking care of not only their poor, uh, but ours as well, meaning the pagans and and the unbelievers. And he actually complained about it, uh, that Christians had such love and care. Uh, There are a number of studies that have shown that it was Christians and Christian love and compassion that that changed how the world around them began to think about orphans and widows uh, and those in need. Uh, Just the whole idea of of giving freely of what you have comes right out of uh, the word of God itself. You can find it in the Old Testament as the people of God are, are instructed to take care of the poor. You can find it in the very character of God. Uh, We read this morning in in Psalm 140 where it says he, he executes justice for the needy, that God is a God who takes care of the needy and watches over the poor and the orphan and the widow. And you can find it in the New Testament as we have here in this passage. What we see from the pages of Scripture here is that God's grace leads to gracious giving. When, when God's grace is at work in our lives, it leads us to be gracious with the things that we have. We begin to see as we, we come to saving faith, we see uh, the depth of our need and we see the riches of what God has done for us. And so as we are saved, the Lord is, is working in our hearts and he's transforming us. And it brings to us and not only an experience of grace, but an understanding and that understanding and experience leads us to desire to be more gracious and loving towards others. So God's grace leads to genuine, gracious giving. And we have in our passage here this morning uh, two examples, an example of, of real generosity that we see going on in, in the entire church, but particularly in Barnabas. And then an example of fake or false or phony generosity in Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to work through the passage uh, in that way. First, this morning, God's grace led the church to meet genuine needs with gracious giving. God's church, God's people were led by God because they had experienced the grace of God to take care of the needs of others so the early days of the church they are they are marked and and we could even say you know this set them apart from those around them they are marked by this unity and this unity led them to give sacrificially for one another look at verse 32 and now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one sa- uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to to him was his own and they had everything in common. You imagine the church here being like a family. Uh, but but deeper than a family. They're they're knit together with heart and and soul. They are caring for one another. They have compassion for one another. They are one in their interests, one in their desires. If someone has a need, uh, other people are stepping up and saying, you know, I can help you take care of this. They are one in their mindset. And this flows first from uh, a commitment to the word of God. Uh, It says in Acts 2.42 that they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching Uh, They had common doctrine. Uh, They had a common fellowship, breaking bread and and prayers together. And Acts 2.44 says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. There were deep bonds of connection so that they did not withhold from one another. If I can be a little provocative, it was a it was a communism of sort. Everything was together. Everything was was of one. It wasn't obviously forced, but it was this generosity that abounded that that no one held on to their things and said, this is mine. It only belongs to me. If you had some sort of need and I had some sort of abundance, I would help you with your need, because I knew that God had given me the abundance. It becomes sacrificial in that way. Look at verse 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So not only do, do are people helping with the needs, they're doing it in such a way that it involves uh, the life of the church, the structure of the church, taking uh, an offering here and then the disciples, the apostles distributing it. And later on in Acts chapter six, you'll see that this is why they established the the office of deacons. Uh, they pick a few men so that the apostles uh, can focus on the word and prayer. But these needs can still be met. But you ask the question, maybe, where did the church, the people of God, where did they learn it from? Where did they where did this desire to to just sell the extra that they have and give it to the needy in the church? Where did it come from? I submit to you that it it came from Jesus and even the instruction of Jesus. So Jesus says in in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15:12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And how does Jesus show his love? Greater love has no one than this. What? That he lay down his life for another. Jesus is not only the one who dies sacrificially for us, but he becomes the model of what sacrificial giving, of what the sacrificial life looks like. And so the early church, knowing they need to love because Jesus has commanded it and seeing the example of Christ and then being overwhelmed, just just an abundant sense of how majestic the grace of God is. They in turn go and show grace towards others. Jesus had described in Matthew 25 what the judgment would look like, where the sheep and the goats would be separated. And Jesus will say to the sheep, which are on his right, he'll say, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Jesus said, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you or in prison and visit you? And Jesus says, I tell you, whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers, You did for me. And so right from the early church, then having this unity, having this commonness of being knit together and heart and soul, knowing that they are brothers in Christ and Jesus calls us his brothers, that becomes natural that they take care of others. So great power and grace then is at work in their midst. And this is this is really why it happens because God is doing something in their hearts. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this... Power of God was active in their midst. People being saved. The apostles giving testimony, saying we saw Jesus resurrected up out of the grave. And then even having the ability, as we saw uh, the last week, that that had the ability to do miracles, to do signs that testified to the truth of what they're saying. This great power is at work and people are getting saved. It's the power of God. It's the same power of God that is at work in our lives that transforms us. That when we get saved, moves us from, from being dead in our sins to having new life in Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God. And Acts says that great grace was at work. This is uh, the first of, of four uses of the word uh, great in our passage. We have great power, the first, the second, great grace uh, was upon them all. You get a picture in the book of Acts of, of how the word grace is used, and we see it coming up later. You see it with uh, Stephen. It says he was a man full of grace and power, and so he becomes a, a great witness and is, is ultimately stoned. When Barnabas visits the church in Antioch, when he when he goes and sees this this fledgling church that has been planted, uh, he it says he was glad and he exhorted them to to remain faithful. Why? The text says it's because he saw the grace of God. The grace of God was at work in the life of the church. It manifested itself in people professing faith in Jesus Christ. The grace of God will always manifest itself with people coming to be saved. Do you really believe that? That God works through his word? That God has the power to save people? But the grace of God transforms us. We become less selfish. Less focused on on me and what I have. We say, God has given me so much when I didn't have anything. I was dead in my sins. And He gave His one and only Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If God gave His Son... That knits the family of God together, because just as much as as Jesus Christ died for me, he died for you who have professed faith in him. And just as much as as God gave his son, God has given me things to give to help the body, whether it's time or talents or spiritual gift or or spiritual gifts or finances The grace of God is that by which he saves us. But he also works that in us to transform us. I would encourage you as you think about prayer and you think about praying for one another. Pray for us as a church that that the grace of God would be powerful in our midst. That we would see it at work. That it would manifest itself in in sinners being changed, uh, people being freed from sin, overcoming things which have maybe plagued them for years or or overcoming the desires to yield to temptation. That it would manifest itself in, in love for others and sacrificial giving. We have then in our passage Barnabas as an example here of a servant, of one who gives graciously. Thus Joseph, verse 36 and 37 Who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas will become a leader in the life of the church. Uh, He will become a missionary with the Apostle Paul and he and the Apostle Paul will go out together. And later on, they'll they'll have a little falling out over John Mark. John Mark had gone with them on the first missionary journey. He left halfway through. Barnabas says, let's give him a a second shot. Barnabas always being the encourager, always, I think, looking on the positive side. Paul saying, in a sense, well, we gave him a shot and and we're not going to do that again. Uh, And they have sort of a falling out for a little bit period of time so that Barnabas goes one way with John Marks and Paul uh, goes another way uh, with some other companions. But Barnabas shows up uh, a number of times uh, in in the book of Acts. Uh, A number of times uh, with the Apostle Paul, I was just. My mind remembered the one time that, that, that he and the Apostle Paul are accused in one of the cities later on in Acts of being uh, gods. Uh, uh, gods who have come down because they're doing miracles. And they run out and tear their clothes and, and say, no, no, we're not. We're not gods. But Barnabas here is first the faithful servant with what he has. I think it's, it's a lesson to us. He starts out as faithful with what he has And and the Lord calls him and and leads him into greater service. The scriptures say, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. And how often in, in our lives do we wait and say, well, when the big thing comes, then I'll be faithful? Sometimes for us, and and this is sort of a, I think, a product of our our American society and and culture and the way we're we're taught to think about our savings and our investments. And we say, I'll I'll hang on to this now. And and when I'm secure, when I have X amount, then I'll be free uh, to give to the Lord. Sometimes people Uh, desiring of of going on and having uh, big ministries don't desire in, in being faithful in the little things first. The Lord of God calls us to be faithful with what we have first, whether he's given us a lot or a little. Could you imagine if if Barnabas has said, you know, I'm going to hold on to this property. It'll be a great piece of investment. And then then when I have my ministry, when I'm traveling, then I can sell the money and and I'll, I'll have my support as it was raised. But he's faithful in giving here with this piece and God calls him on to greater faithfulness. Becoming a traveling missionary later on. What has God given you in your life that you can be faithful with? It may not be much by worldly standards. But it's something that God has given you to be a steward of, to to take care of it, to give it to him as as you can be used of him. Remember the widow in the temple? who gave two little widow's mites. And Jesus says that she gives more than than all of the others who are giving because she gives all that she has. We would look at, at those widow's mites, two little pennies, if you will, and say, what difference does that make? Let's go after the big donors. The guys who can maybe are big businessmen and can drop $100,000 or $10,000 and it's and it's no big deal for them. It's it's minuscule percentage of what they have. But that's where the honor is. The big bucks. God looks at the heart. And he asks you to look at what he's given you and say, how can I use it for the Lord? Is there some need that I can meet? Is there some talent that I have that I can give towards for? You see, the grace of God leads to compassion and grace towards others. Let me give you uh, another example from Scripture. It's the example of uh, the churches in Macedonia. So if you think on a little map here, and if you can think of where Greece is and how it kind of hangs down, if you go north of Greece, you have the region of Macedonia. Uh, And in this time, it was a fairly poor region. Uh, It wasn't a a well-to-do area like, like the church of Corinth was. And Paul writes the church of Corinth, and he says this about the churches in Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So here again. Just like in our passage, the grace of God is at work in these churches. And what does he say? For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. And I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And we could even translate that for the grace or for the gift of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So Paul is taking an offering to take back to Jerusalem and the poor churches there. And here's these churches in Macedonia, which he describes as, as having Extreme poverty. Maybe they even had trouble putting food on their own plate. They might have had a situation where they're barely taking care of their own widows. And they say, let us give an offering. Begging Paul for the favor. The grace Of giving to the Lord's causes. Everything that I have is a gift from God. And I'm a steward then of what God has given me. How do I use my time, you might ask yourself. How do I use my money, my house, my cars? Does God's grace in my life lead me to be more gracious? Let me ask three application questions here. Three application questions. First, who around me has a need? I want you to just think for a moment and maybe if you're you're taking notes, maybe as a a person comes to your mind or as you're driving home, a person comes to mind. uh, Write it down. Who do I know that has a need? That's the first question. The second question, is there something that I can do to meet that need? Maybe you can offer to grow grocery shopping for someone. Maybe you can offer uh, to give them A ride. Uh, Maybe you can offer to to help them in some way. Maybe you can give them a gift. Scripture says in the book of James, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things for the body. What good is that? That's the that's the I hear of the need and I say, oh, I'll I'll pray for you. But I know that I have an opportunity and an ability that God has given me to do something. The third question is, is there something that I can give up to help someone in need? I want you to notice this and I I want you to hear um, maybe hear my heart a little bit on this. Uh, Scripture doesn't ever manipulate us to give And and I hope you don't hear me as as saying that here this morning. We're we're working through a passage. This is the passage that came up. Uh, I'm not dealing with it because I want to make you all feel guilty or or something like the offering was bad last week, so now we've got to preach on giving. It's not like that at all. Scripture doesn't manipulate us to give. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, For each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Part of giving, then, allows us to experience the grace of God. We're doing it cheerfully. Not out of compulsion saying God has given this to me. And sometimes when we when we give to the Lord, uh, maybe we give sacrificially. We say, well, I have this and I'm going to give it. But now I don't know what I'm going to do or where maybe my grocery bill is going to come from. But God is sufficient in these things. Jesus Christ, then in the book of Second Corinthians, is an example of giving. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus Christ is the ultimate one who gave all he had, his very life, for us. And God calls us to be good stewards, then, of what he has given us. God gives you his thing, the things that you have your your life, your house, your your finances, your time, your energy levels. God gives them to you so that you could steward them and use them for his purposes. At the end of the day, these things ultimately do not belong to you and I. Maybe the Lord would have you and me Give up something so that I can actually help other people. Maybe it's a matter of auditing your life and saying, is there something that I can go without? Maybe cut out that extra cup of coffee so that I can help someone by giving that to them. So that's the first part of our passage this morning. This what does true generosity look like? Where does it come from? But let's look for a moment at false generosity. and and we hear this this sermon on giving, but we should never take giving to the Lord as a, a way to impress other people. I'm not to hear. Uh, This passage and say, you know what, think of how good I would look if everybody knew how sacrificially I was giving to the Lord. This is what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. They get caught up in this so that they're not giving out of grace, but they're giving out of selfishness. Look how good I'll look. And then even they hold back some of the money. So the second point this morning is we cannot test God by making a mockery of graciousness. So Ananias and Sapphira sell a field and then they keep some of the money for themselves. Look at verse one and two of chapter five. But as Ananias, uh, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet. Uh, the word here for for keeping back, it's it's they're they're holding on to some of it. It's it's a word that can be used when, when you talk about someone pilfering, you know, when you're when you're skimming off the top. If you're the financial guy for your boss and you're collecting the funds and you you take, you know, 10 bucks for yourself and say, well, I'm going to treat myself to a nice meal. And you put it in your pocket and you you pilfer. You take something and you hold it in reserve for yourself. And typically it's used in situations where it doesn't belong to you. Uh, In the book of Joshua, remember the man Achan? Remember when they destroyed Jericho and God said everything in this city is devoted to destruction. All of the gold, all of the 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 livestock, all of the riches that they have, it all is the Lord's. And so you don't take it for yourself. You devote it to destruction. It's a sign of the judgment of God. And Achan pilfers." It's the same word when they translated the Hebrew to the Greek. They used the same word that he that he took some of the things for himself. He held on to some of the gold rather than giving it over as God would have. This is what Ananias and Sapphira do. The key issue here, though, is that Ananias and Sapphira pretend they are giving all of the money to the Lord. It's. It's the lie that they tell that gives gets them in trouble. So they're pretending to be the good Christian. They want to impress people, perhaps they want to look good in the eyes of others. Wow. Ananias and Sapphira, look how they sold that money and they gave it all to the Lord. Uh, Why? Why do I say this? Well, look down at verse uh, four. Look at the first part. Peter is speaking here and he says, while the property, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So you notice that that no one is demanding or forcing Ananias and Sapphira to give this. Then it says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Meaning, couldn't you do with this money as you saw fit? No one in the church was was putting Ananias and Sapphira under pressure or threatening church discipline, saying, well, you know, if you don't up that check this week, we're going to get you. They thought they could look good in the eyes of men. And so then later on, when Sapphira comes in, Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, yes. For that much. It's the lie and the dishonesty to God. The land belonged to them in the sense that ultimately, yes, it was God's. But God gave them the stewardship over it. So just to put some numbers to it for the sake of illustration. Imagine if you would, if they sold the piece of property for one hundred thousand dollars. If they had brought in 50000 or 40000 or 75000 and said, we sold the land, here's some money from the land, we want to give it to the needy, that would have been completely fine. No one was saying, well, we know you sold it for $100,000 and you better give it all. Peter says, after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal? But if they sold it for $100,000... They decided we're going to bring 50,000 or whatever, some portion of the money. And they laid it before the apostles feet, or at least Ananias does. And he goes, this is what we sold our land for. And we want to give it to the church. Perhaps they even emphasize we sold all of it for all, all. This is all we got for it. We're giving to the Lord because we don't have need of this. Well, they're secretly tucking some away, saying, we're going to hang on to it. I don't know why they hung on to it. Maybe they were greedy. Maybe they they were worried about providing for their future. I I don't know. But in bringing this in this way, they were lying to the apostles and the people of God, and I think they were trying to look good in the eyes of man. But it gets worse than that. They lied to the Lord. It was fake generosity. And you couldn't hide that from God because God knows the heart. Look at verses three and four. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself? Part of the proceeds of the land, while it was remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Uh, there was a a plot here, if you will. This wasn't just like they brought in the money. They put it there. They said, we gave them, we're giving this money to the church. And someone said, wow, you gave all that you had. And Ananias didn't speak up and say, whoa, 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 I didn't give all. This was Ananias and Sapphira plotting to do this. Intentionality. And they lied to God. It says they lied to the Holy Spirit. It's a good reminder to us that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. You can actually lie to him like you can to any other person. God, the father, God, the son. I can lie to you. I can't lie to a rock. I can't lie uh, to the wind. They're inanimate objects. But the Holy Spirit is a real person and you can lie to him. He's also God because later uh, for one verse later, it says you have not lied to man, but to God. Then in verse nine, it says, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. Uh, This is a this is an echo of, of scripture where it says in the Old Testament, and they tested the Lord. Remember when the people of of Israel, they they left, they went through uh, the the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 17, they they are getting hungry and thirsty. And they say, will God actually provide for us? Acts 17, verse two says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test The Lord, but the people thirsted for water and the people were grumbling against Moses, saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with this thirst? How is it they're testing the Lord? God said he would take care of them. God showed that he was their savior. And they took his word and they didn't believe it. They tried to cross him, if you will. They, they, they held out this test and, and were upset and grumbled. How is it that Ananias and Sapphira thought they could test the Lord? They thought they could get away with this conniving. This, we can lie and it will be okay. No one has to know and we'll look good. Later on, The people of God in Numbers 21, they also test the Lord again. They grumble and complain. It says they complained again. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord, this is when they were only getting the manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. That's where Moses then puts the serpent on the stake. But they had tested the Lord. Paul says they even they put Christ to the test. He says, we must he's speaking to the church in First Corinthians 10. We must not put Christ to the test. It's a reminder that Christ is truly God. We must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Ananias and Sapphira, as I've already been saying, they try to put the Lord to the test, to put the Holy Spirit to the test by lying to the church. The Holy Spirit is the one who is inside of us. He makes us the temple Of the Lord. And so, this conniving to say, we're going to lie and hide this from the leaders, we are going to blatantly sin in the assembly of God's people, they weren't really, at the end of the day, lying to men. They were lying to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God. They thought they could do this deed and look good in the eyes of men and have secret sins behind them that no one would know about. You test the Lord when you do those things and not in a good way. It's testing him saying, I'm not sure that he's really going to keep his word. Then great fear falls among the people. These are the last two times the word great is used in our passage. And this is part of the reason I think we've got to work through these two sections together. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon them who heard of it. Then a few verses later, after Sapphira falls down dead, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and, all who heard, and upon all who heard these things people began to say, wow, God is really at work. And in the same way that the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is a good thing, that we honor him, that we revere him, that we don't get to this idea that we can cross him, but we look up to him with reverence. Now, it's not being cowering in fear or crying. But it is taking him seriously. Great fear was upon the people. So what do we do? And I have a few uh, points here that we can finish with. First, if you've ever attempted to put God to the test, repent of it. Repent of our attempts to put God to the test. I think one way that we put God to the test is when we question his character. Now, it's one thing to struggle with doubts and we need to bring them before God and deal with them. But it's another thing to call God out on the carpet in arrogance and say things like, God, can you really take care of me? Are you really there? Will you really do this for me? Furthermore, I think we test God when when the word of God says something, but we decide we're going to see if we can get away with it. The word of God says X and we say, yeah, but I think I can go and do X or the word of God says, don't do Y. And we say, well, you know what? I think I'm going to give that a shot. I'll give you a good example in our modern day culture. And it's happening in young people who grew up in the church and made professions of faith. Going out and living together before they get married with a person. And, and even there are people that write whole little essays and articles about how that's a good thing. It prepares you for marriage. And, and that's really not sexual immorality because, you know, you're you're committed to that person. That's putting God to the test. Saying like Satan does, well, his word didn't really say. If you do that or have done that or been tempted to do that, take that before God and ask for forgiveness. Second thing, do not lie to God. Don't try to practice outright deception with the Lord. You can't hide your ways from God, you can't cover up your sins. Bring them before him. The whole purpose of Jesus Christ is that he washes those things away. And that's a good thing. But don't try to lie about them. Third, we should fear the Lord the same way the people here feared the Lord. First Corinthians ten nine says to the church, says to us, we must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. The Lord can still discipline people in his church. Paul warns the church when they take communion, not to to take it in an unworthy manner because he said this is why some of you have gotten sick and others have have fallen asleep. I think, I don't know for sure, but I think Ananias and Sapphira were genuine believers who tested the Lord and the Lord disciplined them. Scripture says the Lord disciplines those he loves. But you don't put yourself out there saying, maybe I can get away with it. Did you ever try that when you were a kid? You know your parents are going to not like it if they catch you and you say, I'm going to see if I can get away with it. Time to fess up, Carl. I see you shaking your head at your mom there. We've all done it, but don't do it with the Lord. I pray that the Lord never takes one of us home because it has to be disciplined. But don't look and say, well, that was in Bible times. God would never do that today. Honor God. Hold him in high esteem. Fear him. In that way that you acknowledge that he has all the power. Finally, don't try to impress people at church by being fake. I think one of the things going on here is Ananias and Sapphira wanted the praise of men. They wanted to look good. Imagine how it would look. You're bringing your money and you're putting it before the apostles. And, and, and I can almost, in my mind's eye, imagine a situation where there's a crowd of people gathered. I don't think they had pews, but you can almost imagine them filling the pews. And up front is uh, Peter and some of the apostles and James and John. And, and you walk in and you put this money. And, and, you know, it was probably coins. And so it jingles, Right. And it looks nice and heavy and you put it down and people would have been going, wow, oh, that Ananias fire. Oh, such godliness. And they wanted the praise of men rather than the genuine godliness in their hearts. I don't know what it might be in your life that tempts you, but don't do it to praise or to have the praise of men. Don't give your offerings on Sunday for the praise of men. Don't use your gifts in the church for the praise of men. Don't do things so that you can impress other people. Don't, I I would even say, don't hide your sins because you want people to think you're godly. One of the things I think the church can do in our day and age is we can be honest with people. When we're sharing the gospel, we don't have to divulge every sin that we've ever done. But we should at least tell people, you know what? I am just as much a sinner as you are. Why? Because we don't have to impress people. The whole point of the grace of God is that he takes away our sins. And I can say I am a sinner. And I still sin. And I don't have to worry in the church that people won't think I'm good enough. The whole point of the gospel is I'm not good enough. And Lord willing, and Lord, as he works, he does transform. But I don't need to try to impress people with the transformation. I should seek it, but it's not for the praise of men. Scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us do that rather than looking for men to boast in us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would speak to us from your word. That we would delight ourselves in you. We pray that that your graciousness would be upon us. In your precious name we pray, amen.